Before we dive in today, I want to give you a little bit of a warning that we're discussing some pretty intense topics like death, depression, mental illness, and suicide. So grab your headphones if you have kids around, or if these topics hit a bit too close to home for your life right now, save this episode for another time. We're always here when you need us. Let's dive in. Hi there, I'm Margaret. Join me for a deep dive into the life of a freelancer. I share my clients' struggles and successes and celebrate those moments that make it oh so worth it. This is Freelance Freedom. Welcome to this episode of Freelance Freedom. I'm so excited to be joined by Dr. Sherry Walling today. Um, Just as a quick intro, Dr. Sherry Walling helps smart people do hard things. She works with leaders and entrepreneurs to tackle the common and uncommon challenges that go along with the pursuit of an extraordinary life. As a clinical psychologist, speaker, yoga teacher, podcaster, entrepreneur, and best-selling author, she draws from her professional expertise as well as personal experience. Her best-selling book, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together, combines the insight and warmth of a therapist with the truth-telling mirth of someone who has been there. When she's not in the consulting room or hopping stages around the world, Cher can be found on her paddleboard, swinging from the rafters, pretending to be a circus performer, or ushering her three kiddos to an art museum in some new fabulous city. Welcome, Sherry. I'm so excited that we're chatting today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, so. The first thing I want to dive into is your niche specifically. I love your tagline in that you help smart people do hard things. So if you want to expand a little bit about that tagline, how you narrowed down in the niche, and basically uh, how you got to do what you're doing today. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Niching is always really hard for me because I, I like lots of your listeners probably like to do lots of different kinds of things. Um, so it's, it's been hard for me to settle into something that feels like a niche. But I will say that as I've really focused on the mental health of entrepreneurs, business owners, freelancers, um, that has helped me really master my domain, you know, like become an expert in something that's pretty specific. Mm-hmm. And I, I talk about helping smart people do hard things because I think conversations about mental health, which is really what I'm doing. Um, conversations about mental health can sound really illness focused. And that's really not what my goal in the world is. My goal in the world is to help people have access to really good information about mental health so that they can keep themselves as well as possible and be successful running their businesses. So part of learning my niche and understanding my niche and who I serve means figuring out ways to talk about what I do that's like I provide or or that's rather that's not I provide mental health care for business owners because that doesn't that doesn't sound sexy. People people aren't that that interested in doing that. Um, but of course all of us all of us really, really can benefit from more nuanced conversations about how we keep ourselves well and healthy. Yeah. And I love that you went into specifically it's not the ne- like negative aspects of that and illness that you're focusing on. And it really is mental health at its core focus as well too. So that's awesome. Yeah. I think we, when we think about an illness, we think about a- an abnormal or um, an outlier kind of experience. And, you know, the rates of burnout, depression, um, anxiety within entrepreneurs, freelancers, they're pretty high. They're like, depending on which study you look at, they're between 30 and 
40%. So those are not exceptional experiences. Those are super common experiences. Mm -hmm. So I think reframing the conversation so that we're not talking about illness, but we're talking about like, hey, this is part of the up and down of running your own business is that there are going to be times when you are fried, when you are super anxious, when you can't sleep. And rather than like sequester those topics to the corners of like, oh, sounds like you really have a problem. I really want to change the conversation to be like, hey, this is just part of the story. So let's be really proactive and open and figure out how to help make it better, not pretend it's not happening. Yeah, for sure. I think that's so important to the conversation totally, like you said too. And just to touch on the rates a little bit, I know without getting into exact statistics, and I'll link some stuff up in the show notes as well too, but just talking about those higher rates, especially in in founders and entrepreneurs and things like that, in your like do we know why that is? And in your personal opinion, like is there a is it a correlation or a causation and and how how do we kind of wrap our head around that a little bit? Yeah. So when I talk about rates, there are really, there's really only one study, maybe two, that I think has done a really thorough job of looking at mental health concerns in entrepreneurs specifically. So freelancers are even sort of a, a special crew within the larger crew of entrepreneurs. And I don't know that we've got really great academically informed research about the rates within freelancers. You know, and I'm not talking about like a survey thrown up on a website. I'm talking about someone, Dr. Michael Freeman, who is a professor at UC Berkeley, UC San Francisco, doing a, like a really comprehensive study. Mm-hmm. So that study suggested, Michael Freeman's study suggested that entrepreneurs have higher rates of depression, ADHD, bipolar disorder than their sort of matched age socioeconomic counterparts. There's another study that came out of Denmark that found that entrepreneurs and their significant others, by the way, were more likely to be prescribed medication for anxiety-related disorders than, again, their matched counterparts were. So those are the two kind of sources of data that I'm referencing when I'm talking about elevated rates, because I think that's really important to, you know, cite your sources, be a scientist. Um, so anyway, where do those rates come from? I, I actually think that most, um, most entrepreneurs become entrepreneurs because they aren't thriving in the kind of traditional expectations. So many, many, many successful entrepreneurs really struggled in school. Like the rate of not completing college and in in many cases, not even completing high school is much higher in successful entrepreneurs than in the general population of that kind of successful person. So um, these are folks who have learned to sort of forge their own path. And that may be because they're ADHD did not facilitate them sitting still and getting those good grades and then going to college and getting that job working in a cube at IBM. Like these are people who don't do cubicles. Like they can't, they can't survive in that environment. So sometimes it's because of these underlying mental health issues, uniquenesses that they have needed to find another way to do their livelihood And that has led them to entrepreneurship where you make your own hours. You can work, you know, from at 2 a.m. if you want to, 
you, you know, you don't have to sort of follow the structure and schedule that's set down by other people, which is an incredible gift to anyone who's struggling with, you know, mental health concerns or different attentional capacities or different mood regulation. So I think in some ways entrepreneur is a entrepreneurship is kind of a, of a godsend or a savior for some of the brightest among us who just aren't well situated to sort of be on the treadmill of traditional success. For sure. And I think I relate to that a lot too, because I always think about, like you said, not being able to, to thrive or be challenged in those sort of standard cubicle environments. And I think that on top of, and I know I can't, I can't speak for everyone, but I know me personally, I think on top of that, having the, because as you know, with entrepreneurs on any level, there's, there's a lot of low lows and there's a lot of high highs. I feel like everything is so exaggerated and I don't, I mean, I don't consider myself a adrenaline junkie by any means, but I do think there's, there's an aspect of that that's, that's more exciting to me than sitting in a, in a cubicle. And it's more, and I don't know, like you said, there's these sort of uniquenesses that people have. And I think for me, there, there is that draw of like, oh, well, I, I know the lows are low and the highs are high, but the, there's the excitement of that that really lends itself to it, at least for myself, for sure. Yeah, there's, we can talk about traits like the personality trait openness to new experience which is pretty high among entrepreneurs. And there's also um, kind of physiologically, some of us have bodies or brains that are actively seeking more sensation than other people. So it's like, I'm going to go on the thrill ride. Like I'm going to fly the helicopter. Like I want to do the things that really make me feel something. And that means that there's a high capacity to tolerate those ups and downs. Um, on, On the flip side, I do think that there are some parts of entrepreneurship that can exacerbate any underlying kind of mental health conditions. Entrepreneurship can be really lonely and isolating, especially for many of your folks who are listening who are freelancers who maybe don't have a team they could go weeks without talking to another person if they live alone. You know, I think um, that kind of isolation can really trigger depression in folks. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, when you are an entrepreneur and you are alone responsible for that paycheck, you either, you know, you're brilliant and you get paid. If you're not brilliant, you don't get paid. Like those, that sort of all or nothing stakes can certainly create a lot of anxiety. I think the work of entrepreneurship can be relentless and that can certainly create some burnout. So there's no coasting, which is why lots of us love it. And also why sometimes it can really mess with us. It can mess with our well-being. Yeah, for sure. Because I mean, as exciting, like you said, as exciting as those those sort of highs and lows are, after a while, it it takes its toll physically and of course, mentally too, because there's only... There's only so long you can like kind of keep going from one extreme to the other. Uh, yeah. So I think, like you said too, is that, um, again, I'm speculating, but I'm guessing it's that's why there's more experience of burnout because of these extreme levels. Yeah. I think people work really hard. Yeah, totally. Because people, you know, love what they do. It's really tied into their identity and their sense of what brings them meaning and value as a human being. There are pros and cons to that. But, you know, I, I think about some of my friends, um, even highly trained professionals who work, 
for larger organizations and they, you know, they, they coast a little bit more than I do. Like being an entrepreneur is a hustle. Um, and that is, like you say, does take a toll over time, especially if you are not mindfully protecting your, your greatest asset, which is of course your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and that requires some work on our part. It requires a lot of intention and some effort, which kind of goes against the inertia of entrepreneurship, which can just be like hustle more, work longer, do more, take another project um, to be able to say, no, I need to stop or I need to focus or I need to go on vacation. Those things feel really counterintuitive, but are often a really great investment in our businesses because they're a great investment in the health of our, of our brains, of just keeping the neurons connected and healthy. Yeah, for sure. And it's that, and that's the thing too, like slowing, I feel like slowing down is like the last thing that an entrepreneur wants to hear, (laughs) but it's so, so important to recharge, especially when you're, I know so many of us work remotely and so many freelancers work from home and stuff like that too. And it's so hard, um, or it can be very hard to maintain those boundaries of downtime, especially when your office is your home as well too. So there's that aspect that I think is missing where we're not, you're not leaving a cubicle and actually going to a, a separate place at home. Like when these things become intertwined, I think it's so, it's so hard for entrepreneurs to, to mentally shut one off and then, and then start kind of relaxation in the same place that they work for sure. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned this. It's actually the topic of the podcast that I recorded that came out today. Oh, awesome. <laughs> which is a little bit of the like the Mr. Rogers phenomenon. I don't know if you remember Mr. Yeah. Rogers, the, the PBS <laughs> show that many of us grew up with, but um, he would come home from work, whatever Mr. Rogers did for a day job. And he would, the first thing he would do is he's like walking in his door and singing the welcome song for the show. He takes off his like sports coat and puts on his cardigan and he takes off his leather shoes and he puts on his like tennis shoes or slippers or something. And there's this really clear transition from work, Mr. Rogers to, you know, singing, storytelling, Mr. Rogers. And I think that is one of the things that we miss as entrepreneurs, freelancers who are working from home is we don't have those transition cues. And so we have to sort of um, fabricate them. We have to make them up, which means like, you know, you create your little workspace on your kitchen table or your office or your desk or wherever it is. It means there's still a ritual of like, okay, I'm done now. I'm going to close my computer. I'm going to put it in a drawer. I'm going to change clothes, which I think is a big one from like my professional clothes to my yoga clothes or my like, I'm just going to go walk the dog clothes. Whatever it is that can sort of signify a shift for you can be a great invitation to your brain to know like, okay, we're switching context now. You don't have to be on, you know, super smart content writer mode right now. You can be on hey, what's going on with my dog mode right now? And those physical practices, the, the totems that we have in our lives, the significance of like our computer versus the leash that with, with which we walk our dog, those can be really helpful things for our brain to know that it's time to shift gears. Nice. That, yeah, that's so great. And it's something that I definitely want to start implementing myself because I, I definitely have been guilty of falling into the whole um, idealism of work from your pajamas. Don't wear pants to a meeting. So like, 
<laughs> so there's definitely these these sort of like cliches from working working from home that perpetuate it being okay to 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 roll out of bed from your pajamas and and that makes that line so blurry. So having very specific like things like and I think like you said too, I've never I've never done that. I've never kind of changed clothes at the end of my shift, but I could see how that could be a huge just like mindset shift in that out of my I'm out of my professional clothes and I'm into relaxation. I feel like just even that act like could have sort of like physiological changes on, yes. on relaxing totally. Yeah. That's awesome. Um so when people I know you touched on a little bit. So when people work from home, we talked a bit about uh isolation. And I know that a lot of people, myself all included, identify as like introvert and extrovert. Um and I identify um, as an introvert, because I mean, I, I enjoy spending my time alone and, uh, and that's how I feel like I, I unwind and I get energy and stuff. But I, I also wonder if, um, using the label of introvert almost excuses the isolation that you kind of force yourself into. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I think an introvert is someone who really recharges with time alone. It doesn't mean they should be alone all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, really, really core to who we are as humans is to be tribal, is to be connected in relationship to other people. Um, so certainly someone who is living alone, working alone, spending their days alone, that's going to be problematic over time for anyone. But I think for for introverts especially, it's about being wise with how you use your social energy and, you know, probably going to do much better in a quiet conversation with two other people than you're going to do in a, like a bar where there's like a large networking mixer event with a bunch of strangers. I mean, that's going to zap your energy for four days, (laughs) but getting together with you know, two people maybe who you don't even really know well in the quiet corner of a coffee shop is likely to be a much better use of your social energy. I think relationships are one of the first things to go when we get busy with our businesses. And it feels so easy to say like, oh, I'm not going to go to that, you know, yoga class, or I'm not going to do that meetup, or I'm not going to go to church this week. I'm just going to like heads down on this project. And that is um, usually not the right choice, mostly because there's no way to cultivate relationships without showing up, without going to the thing and putting the time in. And relationships are hands down the most important. Uh, we talk about it in research, we call it pr- protective factors, but they're the most important asset that you can have available to you if you are going to go through a really hard thing. So if your business implodes, if your mom dies, if you get cancer, like mm-hmm. if you get in a car accident, any of those things that happen in our lives, you know, not all the time, but most of us will have one or two of them happen in the course of our adulthood. Those are the times when you need that little circle of, of friends that you've cultivated. So if you let that go, and if that hard thing happens to you, and there's no safety net for you, that is the recipe for having pretty significant mental health consequences. Yeah. Um, that's the recipe for deep isolation and loneliness. So... Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's one of those things that's just an investment to make all the time over the course of your life 
even if it takes a lot of energy, um, even if you're an introvert and it's like not your preferred activity, it's still often the right choice so long as you do it strategically. Yeah, for sure. And I think like anything else, it's a, uh, it's a challenge and it definitely something that doesn't come naturally to me, but like all things that don't come naturally to people, it's a practice. I think it's just something that needs to be put into practice, make social commitments, follow through and all that kind of stuff as well. For yeah. Sure. Cause like you said, I, there is, I definitely, when I, when I have more, I mean, when it comes up to like, Oh, well, I don't want to go out or I don't want to leave my house. <laughs> of course, those thoughts come up as they do uh, with a lot of people, but I always, afterwards, you always feel so much better in the feeling of like community and fulfillment. Definitely. And I can see that being cumulative over time. And especially when you hit those rough times, having these people to be able to, to be able to lean on and reach out to. Yeah, absolutely. I also did want to touch on a few things that can come from maybe long-term, long-term stressors and isolation and and especially pre-existing, pre-existing conditions. And I wanted to get into topics like, like suicide, because I know that I know that it's more prevalent in the founders community. I know even in the general population, I think I saw from the CDC since 1999, it's gone up something around like the 30%, which is yeah. crazy. Um, and I know it's all growth. Yeah. It's a topic that's not very much talked about. Um, so I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on why are people not talking about it? What can we do to talk about it? What can we do to support a more normalized conversation? around it and basically get your thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so glad that you are talking about it. It's, it's one of the, the themes that I, I try to touch on and, you know, any of the, the work that I do in public, because it's such a scary word and it's such a scary experience. Um, but once you start to talk about it, you'll realize that many, many people have been impacted by suicide in some way, whether it's a friend from high school or, you know, a cousin or someone. And it really is, um, a very lonely kind of grief for people who've been touched by suicide. Many, many people have suicidal thoughts, probably nearly everyone has some kind of suicidal thought at some point or another. Um, Sometimes they can be quite ferocious and unrelenting in our minds. And again, I think that's one of the things that it's, it's probably important to just sort of say to folks, like this is, this is normal as you weather some of the ups and downs that your mind goes there sometimes so if in my line of work, I think one of the things that people get really nervous about talking to me about is they're like, if I tell you this, does this mean that like you're going to send me to the hospital and you know in, a, in an ambulance with a police escort? Right. The answer is vast majority of times, no. It's, that's yeah. not what it means. <laughs> you know, if you're holding a gun, maybe yes. Right. <laughs> but um, but one of the things that keeps it so quiet is people are worried what's going to happen if I voice this and does that mean that, you know, I'm on the fast track to the funny farm and no, you know, no, that's not what it means. Um, yeah, I was just gonna say, I'm so glad that you touched on that because I feel like spoken and unspoken, that is anyone that I've talked to that, like you said, has been touched by it. That has almost been the biggest fear is they're almost more comfortable 
talking to friends because they're like, no, if I, if I talk to my therapist about this, I'm going to be committed. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my family. They're going to take my kids away from me. And I think that is understandably such a huge fear. And I'm so glad that you brought it up that the answer is generally speaking, no. Uh, but of course, there's if someone's life is immediately in danger, there's there's obviously right. But then I don't care if you don't like me. I'm going to try to keep you alive. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I will say that like our systems to try to help people who are in that level of crisis are really shitty. I don't know if I can say shitty on your podcast, but like you know, I've been you know, ERs aren't really healing places; they're emergency places, and at least, especially within the United States, we just don't have good spots to help people feel like they can go somewhere to be safe for a while. Um, so I empathize with the fact that people are like, I don't want to tell anybody because I don't want anything to happen. And the reality is it's much easier to deal with or talk through some of the darker, sort of scarier thoughts in, in a therapist's office than it is in an ER. Um, so we try to, generally speaking, we try to keep People and we try to keep people engaged in the treatment that they're already engaged in. And I think there are not perfect ways to predict who is most likely to act on those kinds of thoughts. Um, we know that certainly people are more vulnerable when they're under the influence of substances. If there's if they're drinking, if they're um, you know using other substances that are that are impairing the filter in their frontal lobe that might say, yes, I feel really bad, but that doesn't mean I'm going to act on it, that that makes people more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Certainly isolated people are more vulnerable. But generally, quite simply, when someone is having those kinds of thoughts, I try to work with them for a, a stall tactic, you know, because suicidal thoughts, they do come and go. And when they're with us, they feel so loud and so powerful. But often if we can get someone to just sort of sit down and wait for a while or whatever the analogy might be, the thoughts do get quieter and they sort of fade into the distance and they're replaced by other thoughts or other problems or other things. So when those thoughts are really strong, it's time to like go to bed and binge watch Netflix for a while. Like just wait it out for a bit because I promise, 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 promise that it won't always feel that way. Mm-hmm. Might feel worse, <laughs> might feel better, but like it's right. not going, you won't be stuck in this moment forever. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's so important. I'll definitely, I'll email you afterwards and I'll also link up some um, some resources in the show notes as well too. But if there is, because I know there's some, there's hotlines and stuff in Canada, and I imagine there probably is in the U.S. as well too. Yeah, so absolutely. There, of course, if you can, if you can get through it, by like you said too, if you can, if you can wait it out and watch Netflix, and, I, and also if I'm not mistaken, I think you can in the U.S. as well. There's there's places that you can call that they'll wait through it with you, mm-hmm. which is good. So uh, I'm so glad that we're talking about it. I'm so glad to hear that you're not going to if you bring it up to like a healthcare professional, you're not going to get shipped away. So I think that's a big thing that, that we want to emphasize for sure. So I'm, uh, so I'm really happy that we, we cleared some, some up totally. Yeah. It's just, it's almost, it's just better. It's hard to talk about it, but it's better to talk about it. Yeah. With a friend, with a, and you can tell your friend, like, look, I'm just having some really dark thoughts, man. Can you hang out with me for a bit? 
let's go for, you know, like I'm just having some dark thoughts. That can be the code word. Nice. Um, you yeah. don't need to go to all the details, but I think telling people is one of the most important things that you can do. Yeah, for sure. And I think, so on the other side of things too, if, if you're, if someone came to you saying as a friend that they had, they had some dark thoughts, what are, what are some of your suggestions to, to best support that person? I think to the extent that you're comfortable, you can ask some, some very gentle kind of curious questions. Like, do you want to tell me what the thoughts are? Are they things you feel like you might do? What can we, you know, what can we do to help you wait it out? Can I stay with you for a while? Or, you know, this is a tricky one, but most successful completed suicides happen with firearm. So I, I don't recommend this generally speaking, but you know, there's sometimes a time and place to be like, Hey, can I just, can I take your gun home with me tonight? <laughs> there's, there's legal challenges to that. I, you know, I don't, I just, you know, or can I take the key to your gun safe is probably the best case. Yeah. <laughs> don't take the weapon, take the, take the means away. But like, if you're having that conversation, you, you don't have to go there as a friend. But it's a good, it's an okay question to ask to be like, how, you know, what are the dark thoughts and how can we make it harder for you to follow through on them? How can I stay with you? How can we minimize the, the likelihood that this will happen? Most, most suicidal behavior is relatively impulsive. So it might be that the thoughts kind of linger in the background, but then the actual action tends to be fairly impulsive. Mm -hmm. So the harder that we can make it for impulsive actions to be deadly, the better. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. That's some really great advice. And I think even just those, those questions that you outlined, I mean, they're so, they're inquisitive and non-judgmental. And I think that's, like so important because I think if the person felt that they were being like judged or wrong in any way, I think that's, that's the worst route to go down. So, so like you said, being like supportive, inquisitive and, and staying calm for sure. Yeah. I'm so glad we got to talk on that. We're going to switch around and talk about some lighter stuff, but I want to talk about, uh, I want to touch on some death, drugs and sex. Let's do it. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) So just to to keep talking a little bit about loss, there's there's a lot of ways that loss affects us um, as people, of course, but also also as entrepreneurs. So there's the loss of ourselves, and I think that's also something that that people and and in this situation, I don't necessarily mean suicide, but preparing for preparing for like these meat suits don't last forever, right? So <laughs> preparing for the loss whenever it does happen. And I think that's a, uh, especially working for yourself, it's something that a lot of people like to avoid because death is is a, a touchy topic, rightfully so, a lot of the time. And and if you want to touch a little bit about um, people's hesitation to make um, to make plans for themselves and how it really benefits people around them to kind of have their affairs in order, especially as a as an entrepreneur and freelancer, because it's, I mean, it's a lot of times if you if you have a job, there's 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 sometimes there's certain things in place, but even more so now you have this business and what happens with the business when you're gone. Yeah, I will say both as an entrepreneur myself and as someone who's married to an entrepreneur, those questions have been super super important. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because, you know, frankly, none of us knows when our time will come and (laughs) whether it's a heart attack or a car accident or, or cancer, we just don't know. And I think, um, it's been really important for my husband and I to have these kinds of conversations, largely because the kind of work that he does, like I will, I have no idea what to do with. And he really also can't step into my business as a psychologist. Yes. So we're, we're not going to be able to take over each other's work really. Yeah. Um, so we, we kind of made a day of it and spent some time thinking together just with the two of us. And then we met with our attorney to talk about a trust and we put, you know, everything in place, like including things like if he were to pass away suddenly, these are the three people that I need to call to take over the interim running of his business. And then these are the three people that I need to call to sell the business. And like, these are the people that he trusts and, and they, they know that they're in this plan. So they know where information is and what to do about it. Mm-hmm. And it's a small thing. I mean, it, it takes a couple days and it takes some research, so it's not that small, but it really is a gift to your significant other, to your children, even to yourself to know that that plan is in place because you're working really hard to create something. And if you don't plan well, there is a chance that the thing that you've made will sort of languish in bureaucratic mess mm-hmm. if you don't proactively protect it and protect you know, your family from having to go through that kind of legal nonsense journey. Yeah, for sure. And it's a tough thing for a lot of people to face, but I know I, about two years ago, um, yeah, sat down with my lawyer. We went through everything. We went through what I wanted for the arrangements and all of that stuff. And I can, I can say, uh, I mean, I, I have a weirdly relatively comfortable relationship with death, I think, but afterwards there was still this huge relief of mm. it's, it's on paper. It's taken care of. My, my lawyer has it. Everyone in my family has the lawyer's numbers and that's really the only person they need to call because he knows how to execute uh, everything that's on there. So there is a sense of, it feels like there's a sense of completion and there's a sense of, um, it's almost like there's some sort of peace and like calm in that too. Yeah. I think one of the best strategies to to sort of help us manage our anxiety is to be clear about controlling what we can control, proactively taking steps, and then you got to let the rest of it go. So you you can't you can't spend endless time worrying about your death or when it will come, but you can control the paperwork, right? You can yeah, control sure. that the phone numbers have been distributed appropriately. Like those yeah. are things that are within your ability to make it easier for people when or if a tragedy happens. And then the rest of it, it's like you said, you've done what you can. And so there's this sense of calm and peace that comes in because nothing more I can do. Yeah, exactly. And I think what you mentioned about taking initiative on the things that you have control over and, and kind of having to leave everything else up to the universe or God or, or whatever it is, uh, I think that's a, a nice overarching theme that hopefully we can carry into to the rest of our lives too. Because I think that there, and I know we're talking like a little bit bigger picture now, but uh, I think that those are the things that people a lot of the times toil over um, in their business. And, and this is what creates like so much stress and inevitably some burnout and stuff too is like there's, and I know I, I find myself in there too, but this obsession about a lot of the times things that, that we can't control. The what if monsters. Oh yeah. Oh my God. 
(laughs) all the time. And I know that was like a huge piece of advice, the just having to let go. And I know meditations helped myself a little bit for that, but in your practice, what are some other tools that people can use to, I mean, and I, like we said too, it is a practice. It's not something that's going to come overnight, but things that people can do to, to take control over the things that they can, but also the things that they can't just to be able to let them go. Yeah. I think writing is a great tool. Um, Lots of research to support the value of things like journaling. But when you feel that your mind is burdened and that you're kind of like spinning or just laden with thoughts, one of the best things that you can do is like scoop yourself up out of bed, go find a pencil or pen and a good old fashioned notebook and just write the thoughts down and write constantly for four or five minutes. Don't worry about grammar punctuation, just get it out, sort of like word vomit. And then um, take a minute to sort of look back over it and, and ask yourself that question. What on this list of worries or concerns or thoughts is within my control? And then like recopy those into a list. And what are the things that I'm carrying that are simply not within my control? And recopy those things into a list. And then, you know, you then you have sort of this other choice of the things that are within your control, what actions are possible. The things that are outside of your control, how can you help yourself cope better with the lack of control that you have? Because you do have some control over your thoughts and feelings. Um, not perfect, but some some authority or some influence, I should say, yeah. over your thoughts and feelings. And so the things that are outside of your control, even then you can still sort of ask yourself the question of like, how can I feel better about this? Mm-hmm. Um, do I need to stop watching so much news? Do I need to, <laughs> uh, you know, talk about things you don't have control over that are upsetting? <laughs> but like, do I need to be more proactive in other parts of my life so I feel less burdened by this part of my life that I can't do anything about? Right. That's such a great exercise. And it's the first time I've heard about it. I, it's so funny too, because I have heard some people say like writing and journaling have helped me a lot, but I haven't actually done it myself, but I really, it's been coming up a lot lately. So it's like, okay, I get it. Like now it's like, <laughs> the universe is speaking. Yeah, it's like, okay, this is uh, this is the time to be. And I really liked that exercise you pointed out of actually like after you've written, because that's what I always wondered about journaling. It's like, okay, well, after a journal, then what? But I liked how you said to kind of like divide it into these lists of things that are, I want to say actionable because everything as an entrepreneur has to be actionable, but uh, these things that are actionable, but also taking into account the things that are just not actionable and, and making peace with those. Yeah. The, um, the science behind this sort of falls into this, I guess, uh, term called metacognition, which is our ability to think about our own thinking. And uh, I know it sounds very fancy. I'm just going to (laughs) go metacognate right now. Uh, Really, what I'm going to do is journal. Um, So when we get our thoughts down on paper, they're separate from us. They cease to be part of the alphabet soup that lives in our brain and they're down in like a more objective, separate way where we can see them differently. And that gives us a little bit of power to um, use our magic wand to shift them around. So they no longer feel like they're part of us. They're something that exists a little bit 
more separate from us. Mm-hmm. And so we can, uh, we can think about them differently or engage with them differently, which is, you know, the sort of metacognitive process of thinking about our own thinking. Right. Yeah. I know we touched on a lot of, we touched, we touched on a lot. We touched on a lot of um, some controversial and some topics that people said people don't talk about too, but there, there are a couple questions that just to straight up get your answer is work-life balance a thing. Does it exist? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the answer. To that. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if it's like a helpful question. Right. I like you know, my my uh, clients make fun of me because I'm like, "How are you feeling?" It's such a stupid therapist question, <laughs> but it is a question. It's the question. It's true. Yeah. I, like the answer to work life balance is like, "How do I feel That's about true. how I'm showing up in my life?" Am I stressed and frantic and screaming at my kids to get out the door because I'm late for a meeting? Like that's not work-life balance because I'm miserable and I'm spreading my misery to others. Sometimes I'm like scheduled back to back to back, but I'm like enjoying what I'm doing. And then I take a 10 minute break and go play Frisbee with my kid. And then I come back and do my work. Like, is that work-life balance? Yes, because I'm living in a level of joy and engagement. And I feel like my brain is being used, but not overwhelmed. So I don't really, I don't think we can tackle work-life balance perfectly with scheduling grids or time boxing or, you know, 50% of effort here and 50% there. That's just not how it works. But the question that I, you just have to get good at asking yourself is like, how am I doing? How do I feel? Mm. And that's what tells you if you're well or not well. That's what tells you if you need to change your schedule or get more help or, you know, dial back your hours or whatever. Yeah. And I'm so glad that I'm so glad that you brought that up too. Cause I think, like you said, it looks different for everyone. I mean, there is, I feel like the the pendulum's kind of swung as far as hustle goes. It was people were very like pro, you always gotta hustle for like a very long time. And then there was this. I feel like there's this almost like anti-hustle movement, but kill the hustle porn. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then part of me is like, well, but it's. It, I feel like it comes in phases. Like I'm not, I'm not a big weekend person. I would rather work for like three or four weeks straight and then take a full week off. Cool. Um, and I think that it's funny because there's for working day and night, a bunch of days in a row, some people are like work-life balance and, and start kind of like hustle shaming you. And it's like, no, but I like that and I enjoy it. And then I'll, and then I also like taking like two days in the middle of the week for me is not, it doesn't feel like it's any time off. So I would rather push through and see that sort of like light at the end of the tunnel that I can take this vacation or something. So yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that it, it looks a little bit different for everyone. And you figure that out by asking the question, how does this feel to me? Mm-hmm. You know, there's just lots of like gurus and experts that will sort of sell you their perfect morning plan to optimize right. your productivity. And it's like, it's great ideas, but ultimately the only thing that matters is how you are doing, right? Am I focused? Am I productive? Am I happy with my work? Am I generally joyful when I go about my day? Then you're doing it right, period, no matter what they want to sell you. Yeah, But if you are living in a lot of anxiety and shame and sort of constantly telling yourself, I should be doing this better, I should be doing this differently, then like you're not, you're not well. So then you have to sort of play some experimenting and figure out a different schedule or a different plan or a different arrangement that might work better for you. Yeah, for sure. And is, uh, 
because I do want to, we touched on a lot today and I do want to end on, we talked a lot, a lot of heavy stuff. So I want to end on a little bit of a lighter note. Yeah. Uh, we, and we talked about, you mentioned how to, especially for, for work-life balance, how to find something that works for you. And, and I sort of want to end off talking about, we often as entrepreneurs, especially we get so, we get bogged down on the things that we have to do. And I find myself doing this all the time by not celebrating successes, big or small. So I do want to talk a little bit about how can we take pause and celebrate our successes a little bit more and give ourselves a little bit more credit. Uh, And really, I find that people are stuck kind of stuck in their in their work all the time it's hard to to take a step back and be like oh wait there are some things that there are some really great big things that i've accomplished i need to take some time to to look at that and, and feel really good about it yeah i think so not celebrating successes is one of the drivers of burnout and one of the hallmarks of burnout actually there's sort of like six or seven things that consistently show up in the research literature that cause burnout and not taking time to celebrate is one of them. Interesting. So it's, it's not just like, oh, isn't it nice to have a party? It's like, no, if you want to stay working hard in a sustainable way, like you have to give yourself pause. So a couple of ways to do that are another little sort of journaling practice, but at the end of each workday, just two sentences, high point of the day, low point of the day. So tracking the high point of the day does tell you what's going well, where you feel engaged, where you feel successful. Tracking the low point, of course, gives you some information about things that might need to change or problems that you know you need to give some attention to working around. Um, and tracking that kind of data can be super, super helpful. I also think you know when you are at the completion of a big project or when you have a big goal, whether it's a quarterly goal, a, a financial goal, just a completion goal, to give yourself a little bonus there that that can look like lots of different things. It can you know look like a new pair of shoes or just an afternoon off on a hike. Like it doesn't have to be material or monetary, but it's a way of telling yourself, hey, you did it. You did a good job. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard skill. I think most of us are much better at doing that with other people than we are with ourselves. But if you're a freelancer, if you're a solopreneur, then you are your own boss and you better figure out how to be a good boss because otherwise you're going to have a disgruntled employee on your hands. <laughs> you have to live with that in- disgruntled employee all the time and that's just going to be miserable. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> nice. Awesome. So I know that I said that want to leave on a high note, but... You did touch on burnout a little bit. So, and I know you said there was a specific list of indicators. Now I'm so curious what the rest of the list is. So, oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> Let me see if I can bust them out off the top of my head. Um, I did give a talk uh, about this at Business of Software, which is a publicly available video. So, if I miss one, oh, okay. Awesome. Can check and that we'll out. link that up too in the show notes. So. Yeah. But it's basically like um, too much work, not enough social support or engagement. Lack of clear goals, not celebrating successes, a gap between how you spend your days and what you find most meaningful. And there's one more that is escaping me, but I feel like that's so those perfect. Those are the CD ones. It's so, so we'll perfect. Just leave an we, there. Yeah, I was going to say, because then we can say to find out the last one, you're going to have to go and watch the video. <laughs> so that's so perfect. 
I, we covered a lot of ground today. I feel like we could cover so much more, but I also want to be, I want to be respectful for yours and of course the listeners time. And, and please, I want to give you like just a little bit to tell us what's going on. Where have you got, where can people find you and all that good stuff? Yeah. So I live online at sherrywalling.com and zenfounder.com. And I have a podcast where I talk about things related to family life, mental health, sanity, really (laughs) for entrepreneurs. Um, And that's called Zen Founder, Z-E-N Founder. Um, I also, I think you mentioned at the beginning, I wrote a book uh, recently um, with my husband called The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Our Shit Together. And my 12-year-old son came up with that title. So both proud and embarrassed. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And this is my life's work is to help people like you feel like they are able to do what they most want to do and are well in their minds and in their relationships. So people should definitely feel free to reach out to me via either of those channels and I'll be happy to chat. Amazing. Thank you so much. And I highly recommend you guys go over and check out Zen Founder. The episodes are incredible. Uh, I was just introduced to it a couple weeks ago and I can't get enough of it. So (laughs) please go over, check it out. And I want to thank you so much, Dr. Sherry Walling, for joining us today. And you've given such amazing tips and actually actionable steps too, to take. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Dr. Sherry. Thank you so much for spending your time with me. As always, I love to keep the conversation going. So head over to Twitter or Instagram at Margaret Fell. That's at M-A-R-G-R-E-F-F-E-L-L and tag me or slide into my DMs with any questions you may have. You can also find me at my home base of margrafell.com for all the resources. I'll see you next time.